At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. My name is Paul. I've been here before. If I've met you before, it's great to see you again. If I've not met you before, I get to serve as the care pastor at the Troy campus, and I also uh, serve in the area of Christian education there. And uh, occasionally, they, they give me the privilege of preaching, and I'm thankful for Jeremy uh, giving me a call. So be sure to pray for him and the leaders that are, that are there today, and I know that will be greatly appreciated. Well, as the text was read, and by the way, I think it's great alignment between the songs and the text that uh, we'll be talking about today. And if you have those Bibles, keep your, keep your finger there in Revelation 20 as we begin to go through this. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going to go as we continue to work through this series, All Things New, uh, we're going to look at the main idea that uh, God gets the final word on sin and evil. Satan is defeated, sin is judged, and death is destroyed. Now, as you begin to think about this, uh, perhaps a court of law comes to mind. And at the end of the day, after all the testimonies have been given, all the evidence is presented, the case has been presided over by a judge in our system, the case then goes to the jury. And as long as everything has gone according to the law, the jury then has the final say in the outcome of the case. You could think of the trial judge, and you could think of the trial itself, and you could realize that just as the jury has the final say, and we think about this in the context of God, God is the one who has the final say over death, sin, and evil. Now, as we begin to work through this passage, and we think that in context, we also present ourselves with a tension in this passage. There's a tension that exists, and and as I was on my way this morning, it was so nice, Pastor Chris called, he's praying for you guys, Pastor Chris also called to pray for me, and he he kind of quipped, we've got a hard passage today, don't we? And we do. And uh, we just kind of back and forth a little bit as we're studying this, there's a weight of this passage that is extremely, extremely heavy. But there is a joy in this passage which should lead us to be joyful beyond explanation. And when you have those two extremes, how do you present them both? It's very hard. Let me know how I do here in about 30 minutes. But as we think about this tension that exists with this passage, right? The good news is that Satan... Death and evil are defeated. The bad news is that there will no longer be a time for anyone to repent of their sins and experience the grace of Jesus Christ. For the person who is a sinner, there is knowledge about the finality of what will ultimately come and the fact that there will be a time, there will be a day when there is no longer an ability to, so to say, get out of hell card Let me present it to you. 
And yet for the believer, there's this exuberant joy that exists because we know that sin, Satan, and death are defeated. And we know that if we are in Christ, we will not be judged on that day in the negative way, but we will be judged in the positive way to go into all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. There's great joy in that, but there's also sorrow in it because there are people that we know, neighbors, friends, relatives, co-workers, whomever it might be, who will not confess Christ and their chance at repentance will have gone away and they will go and to spend an eternity in hell. So we have these great two tensions. If we can look at it from maybe a, a, so to say, modern historical perspective, we could think of just how we celebrated or recognized Memorial Day just a few weeks ago, right? On, on one level, we are so grateful and joyous for the people who have sacrificed. And we remember them, those who have given the greatest sacrifice. And we're joyful because we reap the benefits of their sacrifice, and yet we are sad because of what had to happen. In a bigger context, think of, for instance, World War II. It was May 4th when there was victory in Europe Day. And as soon as Germany had surrendered, there were great celebrations all over Europe and in the United States and and in various places of the Allies. And there was this great exuberant joy But there was also the realization that just because the war had been won, the battles still continued. It wasn't as if the soldiers on the Allied side could just go into any city and not have body armor or not have tanks or not have guns because there was still a rebellion taking place. The war had been won, but the fight still waged. You even think in a bigger context, even though there was victory in Europe in May of 1945, We understand as well that it wasn't until several months later where there was victory in Japan at an enormous, enormous cost. Finally, as you begin to think about this, a courtroom, a battle strategy planning room, we could also go to World War II and we could understand how, looking back specifically, how the Allies systematically dismantled evil, and those of the Axis powers, right? Take the Pacific War, for instance, island by island, systematically defeating the enemy in order to bring about victory. Revelation shows us the great battle, and Revelation also shows us the great victor, and Revelation also shows us how God systematically dismantles evil, Satan, and all those who have rebelled against God. But God gets the final word, and he wins. As we begin to go through the passage that we just read, let's begin to look at our first point. Satan is defeated in verses 7 through 10. The Bible says when a thousand years are ended, and we've studied this a little bit, I won't spend a lot of time on that, but it's referring to the millennium. Satan will be released from his prison. And Satan will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Think of it in the context of this. We live in a society where hopefully when someone commits a crime and they have to go to jail in order to pay the punishment for that crime, they 
come out perhaps at the end of their sentence and they are reformed. They realize the ways that uh, they were pursuing were wrong and they were sinful and they weren't constructive to society. And, and if everything goes well according to our system, they will go and they will be reformed while they are in prison and they will come out and that person will be a productive member of our society. That's the way we hope that it works. But there is also the realization that there are many people who, after paying the dues to society via sentence in jail, they come out and reformation has not changed. And so their heart is still the same. In the worst of those cases, the heart is actually hardened to what they experience. And now, instead of being reformed, they are far from it. They are extremely more wicked than when they went in. Well, this is what is happening with Satan. As Satan was put in jail, we know there was no hope for him to be reformed, so to say. He's not going to come out of jail and say, hey, I was wrong in all this. But instead, what we see is Satan, true to his nature, after this thousand years of being in jail, he comes out and he doubles down on his evil ways. So much to the point where he begins to gather. He continues to deceive people to follow his evil ways. And so he gathers this army, and of course, understanding the apocalyptic language that's being used here by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're told that Satan, in fact, is very, very effective at continuing to deceive people. And he does it so much to the point of gathering for battle the number that is like the sea of the sand. Now, if anybody's going on beach vacations, I don't want to ruin your imagery of the beautiful sandy beaches that perhaps stretch for miles and you're enjoying them. But think of it this way. Take that imagery and you can understand what John is doing here using imagery language of the day that people would have been familiar with. Even writing to churches, he understood that just as he was writing to the churches, those who were in the churches had an idea of this type of language more numerous than the, sea, than the sands of the sea. They would have understood that this meant a great, great multitude. So many people that they couldn't even begin to be counted. And so Satan is very effective at continuing his deception of people, continuing his deception of souls, and he gathers this great, great army that is like the sand of the sea. And they march up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The battle is getting ready to take place. It seems like if everything is going as it is being communicated, death and evil and Satan are about to win. And this great final battle, the numerous amounts of those who are enemies of God are gathered, and here we're told in Scripture, they actually surround the camp of the saints. Who are the saints? The saints are those who have repented, who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And they are followers of Jesus Christ. If we just stop there, and we are the ones to continue the story, how do we continue it? If we're being realistic, we're continuing and saying, look, the army of the saints doesn't have a chance. They're surrounded on all sides, through the east, they're surrounded, through the west, they're surrounded, through the south and the north, they are surrounded. They are completely engulfed, and as the battle gets ready to wage, they will be defeated. Well, that was Satan's plan. But the scriptures continue, and it says this, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. 
in one final swoop of power and authority over Satan and his armies, they are completely, according to what Scripture says, consumed. Consumed. Now, thinking of our Bible knowledge, we could perhaps think about what's going on here. It says fire came down from heaven, and that might evoke images. Certainly it would have for the readers of this revelation, the early churches, it would have sparked for them the reminder of what happened in Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. And just as in Revelation 20, the Lord brought fire down from heaven and consumed them, so in Genesis 19, 24, the scripture says, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire. Or it might take us to that story in 1 Kings where there is the prophet Elijah battling with the prophets of Baal and even mocking the prophets of Baal. And what happens, of course, God brings down fire to consume them. So this powerful imagery is letting us know a few things, that God is in control, that Satan and his army, no matter how great they are, are defeated. And those who are of the army of God, the Christians, they will be saved. The scriptures go on in verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever. The passage using the imagery from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is telling us that this place of torment is everlasting. There is not a time in the day, an hour of the day, a minute of the hour, or a second of the minute in which the torment is not happening. It will happen, and it will happen for all of eternity. But what this also tells us is not only that Satan and those whom he has deceived are defeated, but it tells us that as he is defeated, God is greater. And so what do we do with a passage just even in those first few verses? Knowing that there's this great battle. It looks like the saints are going to be destroyed and God from heaven rains down fire, consumes all of the enemy and casts their leader into this place where they are tormented day and night forever and ever. When we see a battle like this and we know how it will end, it should leave us having a disposition of encouragement. Satan is defeated, and therefore we should be encouraged because guess what? We are on the winning team. You think of how this should be played out in our lives, and, and we see a passage like this, and it tells us once again, there is a hope that is greater than a discouragement that would exist in our culture and our society. We understand that just as there were hard things and evil things and sinful things happening as people were being deceived, there's the greater reality, especially for those who are in Christ, that Satan is defeated. And therefore, we are on the winning team because our King Jesus is the one who wins and destroys all of evil for all time. As a care pastor, even just as a pastor, just even as a Christian, sometimes what the Word of God should do for us is correct our disposition. You know who I'm talking about. 
And all of us have probably been guilty of this at some sense. And I'm not saying that we should ignore these feelings, but I am saying our, our overall disposition should be one of hope and encouragement and joy and we're on the winning team type of attitude. But sometimes, and you know, there are some of us at times, and there are some people that you know, whose disposition, even though they claim to love Jesus, is a woe-is-me type of disposition. They look at the world, and instead of looking at the world through Jesus is victorious, and my Jesus, and I am on the winning team, they look at life through a woe-is-me mentality. They look at life, and instead of saying Jesus is victorious, they say, oh man, this battle is so hard. Instead of realizing we're on the winning team, they sit there and they say, how in the world is Jesus making life easier? And so there's this great disposition that sometimes we have as Christians, and if we're not careful, that we can fall into, where instead of realizing that we should be joyful and encouraged and hopeful because of what will happen, instead we seem like the ones who are defeated. And think of the way that communicates to a world who is lost. Why would I want to follow Jesus when I see you just moping around? You're hopeless. Your disposition is such that I don't want that Jesus if this is the Jesus you're talking about. But instead, because we know that Satan is defeated and we should be encouraged, let our disposition be such that I am on the winning team because of Jesus and I want you to be on the winning team because of Jesus. The world needs to know that their team does not win. So come and join Team Jesus. Satan is defeated. And therefore, be encouraged. And let your disposition and your language and your posture communicate it. Well, we move on to the next few verses. Beginning in verse 11, the word of God says this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Here is the beginning of the narrative where it tells us that sin is judged. We have this great white throne. And of course, who sits on the throne? One who rules. One who rules in authority. And we're told the power of this person who rules. It says his presence, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. This is God or this is Jesus himself sitting on this throne ready to judge Satan, evil, and all of those throughout all of history who have rebelled against the great and mighty God. And as the passage continues to unfold, we begin to learn a few things here. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now you might be reading this, and you're beginning to wonder, like, whoa, what what about me? I want to encourage you here for a moment from Romans chapter 8, where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I remember at my last church, there was a gentleman who had been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And he was a man who certainly had regrets in his life, but he was a faithful member of the church. And when his life hit the point where he was no longer really able to get out safely or really not only because of the risk of infection, but just he literally couldn't 
get enough breath or enough oxygen to allow him to get up and walk for any length of time. But I remember visiting him, and as I was talking to him in the last few weeks that he had, we had a sincere conversation. He talked about how he wasn't quite sure of his position in Christ because he knew that death was imminent for him. The doctors had not been able to heal him. There was no more medication that could help him except for morphine to ease the pain. And he knew his time was coming close to when he would die. And I think this is one of the weapons that the enemy uses in our last stages of life. He sits there and he begins to kind of whisper in your ear, so to say, are you really saved? Can Jesus really forgive you of your sins? Do you really believe that a man died on the cross and because of that and his resurrection, you can be forgiven and that you'll go to heaven when you die? I fully believe that's one of the tools of the enemy. And as I was sitting there and I was conversing with Greg that day, I just began to ask him some simple questions. And I said, well, Greg, I hear your concern. But let me ask you this. Have you repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, yeah, I have. Okay. There you go. And I continued to ask him. I said, Greg, you were baptized in the church as an expression of your faith. We know the baptism didn't save you, but you expressed your faith in that way. And Greg, ever since I've been at this church, you, you have been serving this church faithfully. Like your, your, your works, I think, are demonstrating a genuine faith. And, and I can understand the, the way you're feeling and the concern you're having because of what you've done. But I just want to remind you, you have been forgiven of your sin. And you are secure in the grace of God. He eventually worked through that and one of those moments where you don't want to let emotions drive your faith, but you want to let the truth of the word of God drive your faith. And when you look at a moment like Revelation and what's going on here in chapter 20 and the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open, I just want to encourage you, if you are in Christ, be confident of the time when you will face your maker. Not because of what you've done, but because of what God has done. But on the other side of the coin are the dead who have not repented of their sins, who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible in this passage describes them as great and small. Looking over the course of human history, we can, of course, identify the great sinners. We can look at people like Hitler. We can look at people like Stalin. And we can sit there and we can say, yes, these are people who sinned greatly and they are going to be judged finally for the evil that they unleashed on this earth. And we feel like justice will be served. But also encompassed in this are the small, so to say. These are the people who we've never known them. They've never made a history book. They've never made a newspaper. They've never made any sort of record of who they were or what they've done. Perhaps it's even some obscure person who really, when you look at it, has, has lived a good life. They've actually been helpful to society and, and they've done things that we would say, hey, that's a, that's a model type of citizen. 
But what they are guilty of is the fact that they've never repented of their sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the great and the small stand before the throne. We looked at other places of Scripture, and this becomes really difficult, but we understand that there are those even, according to Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We understand that at this judgment, there will be great and small sinners, so to say, but they will all have one thing in common. They have rebelled against Jesus and never accepted his forgiveness. The scriptures go on to say that another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Now just think about that for a moment. Once again, the power of the imagery language, which John is saying through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this judgment is so great that even in the most mysterious part of our world, the depths of the sea, the dead will be raised from those parts. There is no person who has died who can ever escape from this judgment that will take place. No soul, no body, no person can escape this judgment. One of the things that came to mind as I was studying for this passage, if you remember several years ago, when Osama bin Laden was captured, of course, one of the questions was, what, is, what are they going to do with him, right? He was caught alive, and uh, then he was killed, and the body was taken, and what are they going to do with the body? And you remember all the conversation, perhaps, about, well, he was Muslim, and there were Muslims who were saying, well, no, he's not really Muslim. And do we bury his body? And the predominating thought that came was, we need to bury him at sea. We're not going to burn his body because that could be extremely respectful and incite more conflict. We're not going to bury his body because it could become a place where shrines are made and martyrs are developed. So we're going to bury him at sea where no one will ever find his body. His body will never be recovered and there's no chance of any of those other options really happening. And so they threw his body wrapped and weighted over the edge of a boat to the depths of the sea. He will be raised back for this day of judgment. The Bible is talking about death in Hades. You see in this passage, death is capitalized as a title. Hades is capitalized as a title. Death is a reference to all places of the earth. And there will be this resurrection of the dead. And there will be no place where the punishment will not reach. Hades oftentimes referred to this place using the imagery of Jerusalem of the day. Where outside of the city there is a place referred to as Gehenna. Where the trash would be taken and it would be burned. Where those things that were not wanted would be taken and would be burned. And there was this constant fire that was always burning so that it would help at least at least decrease the stench of the trash and the waste of the city to help make everything else more bearable. 
In the saddest of the scenarios, there were criminals or people who, who would not be claimed. There, no one would claim their body. And these bodies of the people were taken and they were burned in this ongoing, everlasting, so to say, fire outside the city. And using this imagery, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done, is what Scripture says. But also a very real practical implication of this is what they had not done, which is believed in Jesus. Verse 15, in anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Notice, this is God, this is Jesus casting a judgment. Go back to the courtroom for a moment, understanding that in the court of law, in our system at least, when a criminal is found guilty, he or she is carried away and brought back for a day of sentencing, a day in which they learn their fate because of the crimes that they've been convicted of. There was the conviction, now there is the sentencing. And these things of eternally spiritual significance, there is the judgment, and here is the sentencing. It's a very powerful moment in all of Scripture. And what happens is we learn that the judgment, once again, just like we've always read and we read just in the previous passage, the judgment is one that is eternal, and the lake of fire is one that is forever. Scripture uses very vivid imagery to contain, to help us understand what hell will be like. There is a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. There is this eternal torment. There are sleepless nights. It is the place where worms, so to say, do not die. It is a place not of unconsciousness, but of consciousness of the fact that the pain is eternal. The reality of God is eternal. And their punishment is fully realized at every single moment. This is the sobering part. This is the sobering part for us because we begin to understand that those who are not in Christ experience this unspeakable tormenting of their souls every moment of the day, which leaves us to be in a position. If we know that Satan is defeated and we should be encouraged, and we know now that sin is judged, let us be compelled. Let us be compelled, if we are Christians, to be encouraged that, that death will finally face its final judgment. Just as those who are victims of the criminal feel a sense of justice when judgment is finally cast and the person is put in jail, so we now feel justified and we feel vengeance will be served one day and we are encouraged by that. And we look at the reality of what's around us and we realize there will be a time where there is no longer any negative impact of sin. There is no sickness. There is no death. There is no need for a pharmacy. There is no need for a hospital. There are no needs for counselors. There are no needs for funerals. There are no needs for any of that stuff because death will be defeated. And so it compels those of us who are Christians to be encouraged again to the nth degree. And to also fully realize that being on the winning team 
we know the victorious Jesus will demonstrate his final act of authority in judging all those who have rebelled against him. But for those of you who are not in Christ, if there are any here today, let it also serve as a warning for you of what awaits you if you fail to repent of your sins. And so what should it compel you to do? It should compel you to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And those of us who are believers, we look around and we know those people, the neighbors, the family members, the co-workers, the people we run into. These are the people who need Jesus, and this is what awaits them if they fail to hear the message and believe. And so knowing that sin is ultimately judged, it should compel us to act. And lastly, death is destroyed. Here in verse 14 and 15, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Death is destroyed and therefore we should rejoice. We look at this passage, and as I said at the beginning, there is this great tension. There's this great tension of wanting to rejoice, as we're saying here, knowing that there is this final battle that is won, and it is victorious by Team Jesus. And as Christians, we are part of that team. But there is also this reality of the fact that death and Hades themselves being judged tells us that there is that day of judgment for all who don't believe. But what happens is, as we look at this final judgment that is made in verses 14 and 15, we cannot help but look ahead to Revelation 21. Now most of that is going to be discussed in the weeks to come, but I just want to take you just a little bit to give you a taste of the amazing beauty of the package and what happens post-victory. You know, we look in our world today, right? And, And when there's a great victory, usually there's a great celebration that follows. And this happens on a monumental scale that we see here in Revelation 21. We're told, particularly in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And we look forward to the party that is going to happen here in Revelation 21. And why does Revelation 21 happen? Because Revelation 20 happens. And so we sit here and we rejoice with King Jesus, knowing that he is all-powerful. He will be finally fed up with sin and Satan and death and rebellion. And he says, this is it. Those who are outside of Christ, those who are opposing the will of God, are finally judged. And now there will be this peace that the world has not seen, and even in a greater sense than Genesis 1 and 2. And we rejoice if we are in Christ. Oh, but for those who are not in Christ. For them, the torment continues forever and ever. And ever. And ever. So let that compel us. But for those of us who are in Christ, the joyful celebration will go on forever. And ever. And ever. And ever. And so, we're on the winning team, church. And here's my challenge to all of us. Let's continue to recruit people to the winning team. And how do you do that? 
You do that by realizing the judgment that awaits them. And you do that by communicating the message of the gospel that is for them. And then you invite them to the team that is awaiting them. And so let's rejoice, but let's also be challenged and motivated knowing that God will have the final say. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.